0: Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow On Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow On Call, the He Monk Podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Rodak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we start a new series as part of our hematology consult series, this time going through the ins and outs of hemolytic anemias. And we intentionally are releasing this at the time that we are, because this will be a really critical component of some of the things that we think about um, in future diseases that we talk about. So this is, you know, our ongoing efforts to make sure that we're building on prior knowledge. I'm excited, guys.
1: I'm emboldened. I cannot wait. This is one of my favorite things to talk about.
2: Yeah, I know Dan and Ronak are super excited. I'm excited to get to CLL, which is after this, which is why we're doing this first. You know, Ronick foreshadowed. I just gave it away. That's that's what I'm excited for. But we're gonna get through it. This is still really important, and we're gonna give you guys a lot of pearls taught by Dan the Man and Ronak. What's your nickname? What's your middle name?
0: Uh, it's it's Herschad. There's there's nothing that goes well with it.
2: No, I know that. But like like let's let's think of something.
0: Ronak the
1: Terrible. <laughs> Ronak the Destroyer.
0: I got nothing. It's all good, man.
2: I need to think of a nickname for you.
0: Uh, I mean, our wedding hashtag was Jan found her mystery man. So my last name is
1: more fun than my first mystery name. Man. The mystery is man. <laughs> with pearls from dan
0: <laughs> with, with pearls from dan the man house wrath and Ronak the mystery
2: man mystery
0: yeah i'm excited i i totally geeked out in preparation for these and i i read clinical hematology by Wintrobes, so i'm ready to share all this knowledge with with everybody so without further ado guys let's go ahead and roll that show really quick though before we roll the show that's a reference to ricky bobby the mystery man. Now you see him, now you don't. That's Ronick
1: The reason you don't see him is because he was reading Win cover to cover. <laughs> that's right.
0: That's right. Now we'll actually get to the show. <laughs> Guys, right around this time last year, I asked you what your New Year's resolution was. I don't know if you remember what you all said. I do recall what I said, which was that I um wanted to read more primary literature and let me just say that that was only mildly successful um so i'm thinking i'm going to be a little bit more realistic this year but um what are you guys thinking for for this year i have no idea what mine
2: was last year at all i do remember ronick it was so ridiculous so ronick think of something better than that but mine this year is to limit the amount of meetings that i have after work hours we're trying to, we used to record at night for our listeners to know and now we're trying to do, to record them during the day you know maybe on a weekend day have a better time you know this is going to be good and and i think tomorrow we're we're all getting together and and dan's cooking us food it's going to be a great time so that's my new year's resolution is to one limit the meetings and two eat more food from dan the man house wrath
1: well i got a surprise for you you're going to be doing the cooking i'm just going to watch uh, no, I, I, will yes, chef. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think mine last year was to, to run and I was stuck with that for about half the year. Uh, and then I got COVID around the middle of the summer and, uh, and it got really hot. And so I used both those as my excuse to stop. Um, but I did wear through one pair of running shoes. So I, I, um, I feel like I kept my end of the bargain at least for most of the year. Um, this year I have a probably unobtainable goal, um, but that's what resolution is for. And uh, I'm going to try and keep my inbox to one screen's worth of messages. We'll see if that's possible, given that we get about 15 calendar notifications a day about various tumor boards being moved from Teams to Zoom and Zoom's Teams and all that. But um, we'll see. We'll just see.
0: And I am slowly accepting the fact that I am, and we are all getting older. Um, and so my New Year's resolution this year is to take like 15 minutes a day to work on um, integrating some more mobility work into into my normal routine. So that way I can continue to perform well on the things that I really like to do um, when, when I'm at the gym. So it's all gonna be health focused. Honestly, if I could give all this up, I think I would just wanna do that full time, but can't quit my day yeah, job. Keep the hips
1: loose. It's important. What
2: yeah. does that mean, Ronak? I, we don't even have to explain it. We'll just leave it with that.
0: Ronick's gonna do more quote mobility work. More,
2: Still more don't know mobility what that means. work. <laughs> yeah.
1: Dynamic
0: warm-up. But good yeah. for you. Good yeah. for you. Yeah. I like it. Thanks. I like man. It. I'm trying to stay limber, you know. Um, but that's how that's how you avoid injury. We'll see. I'm I'm hopeful that by next year this is actually a resolution that I'll be able to keep, unlike the one from last year. So um, you know. We'll see in a year. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Guys, today we are starting on a new journey, um, this time talking all about hemolytic anemias. And anyone that's been on a hematology consult rotation knows that you are likely going to get a consult asking you whether or not a patient is undergoing hemolysis. And so it is really, really important that we as hematologists and oncologists understand this concept, what this means, understand that there's more etiologies of hemolytic anemia than just, you know, warm and cold, which is a thing that everybody is gets nervous about. I think as we've been doing, I think we should probably start it with a case and maybe that's how we can lay the foundation for our discussion today. All right. So I'll, I'll, I'll kick us off with the case. We have
2: a 65-year-old male with really regular past medical history, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and osteoarthritis who recently underwent a right knee replacement that was relatively uncomplicated Unfortunately, the patient had post surgical urinary retention that required his foley to remain in place for two days. Upon removal of the foley, he developed dysuria. Infection was ruled out, so the patient was started on peridium and discharged. Two days later, he presents to the emergency room with increased fatigue and progressive jaundice. He is noted to have a hemoglobin of 9.5, down from 12 post operatively, without any evidence of bleeding hematology is consulted given concerns for a possible hemolytic anemia. So speaking for myself, when I was an internal medicine resident, when I was an early fellow, I don't know why hemolytic anemias were so complicated to me and confusing. And we're going to break this down for everybody. It's pretty simple. Either my body's done killing the red blood cells or my red blood cells structure ain't working right and they're splitting open on their own. And we'll get to that. So I want to ask you guys, when should we consider hemolytic anemias in our differential diagnosis?
1: So anytime a patient has an unexplained acute anemia, we do want to think about hemolysis as a possibility. I think you got to start by looking for blood loss. That's typically the most common reason why somebody might become acutely anemic, and certainly I would consider that more common than hemolytic anemia. But once you've done a really good job on history and physical exam, figuring out that it is very, very likely the patient is not bleeding then, you know, definitely be thinking about hemolysis, um, just because these can be pretty serious and pretty emergent conditions if if somebody is briskly breaking down their red cells. Some things that can support the idea that hemolysis is at play here uh, is the onset of of other symptoms suggestive of blood breakdown, things like jaundice, sclerolictris, dark urine, that bilirubin's coming out somewhere, so that's like really dark brown color to the urine. Or um, abdominal pain, sudden onset, back spasms, that sort of thing. Asking about whether or not this has ever happened before. Uh, Is this maybe something where they're having chronic intermittent hemolytic episodes? Any recent medications that have been started? Uh, Thinking about either drug-induced hemolysis or certain enzyme deficiencies that can make people sensitive to, to certain medications that cause hemolysis? Um, any recent illnesses, an antecedent for respiratory tract infection, something that could have set off an autoimmune event. Any B symptoms, thinking about the lymphomas uh, and other sort of B cell malignancies as a setup for this. Um, things like weight loss, fevers, night sweats, early satiety. Is there any family history of anemia? It's like, oh yeah, all of my first cousins also hemolyzed from time to time. Um, Usually the history doesn't come out quite like that, but um, just looking for a similar pattern in family members can be suggestive of a congenital defect in the red cells. And then, of course, any personal or family history of gallbladder disease, sort of one of these several steps down the line Uh, Things to be thinking about, but over time, hemolysis leads to the development of pigment stones. So most folks with a congenital anemia will lose their gallbladder at some point, fairly early in life. And lastly, recent surgeries, recent blood transfusions, surgeries again. That's going to be more looking at is there bleeding going on somewhere that we haven't thought about? Most bleeding, you'll the evidence of it, like someone bleeds from a cut or bleeds into their gut, it's it's pretty obvious. But deeper internal bleeding, particularly related to surgeries, may be less obvious. People can hide blood uh, in their abdomen or in their thighs in pretty great quantities. And then recent blood transfusions, thinking about delayed hemolytic transfusion reactions, these sort of later down the road things that can happen with transfusions where suddenly some of that transfused blood and even some of the patient's own blood may start to hemolyze.
2: In many cases, the answer to many of these prior history questions may be negative, but if clinical suspicion remains, this workup is definitely warranted. And you know, Rona, can you tell us a little bit about of what should we think about on exam for these patients and and just just a brief walkthrough for somebody who's just approaching a patient with potential concern for hemolytic anemia?
0: Yeah, and I and I wanna highlight what Dan mentioned. I mean, first and foremost, we have to rule out this patient isn't bleeding, right? So um, making sure that we are, um, especially if they've had any major surgeries, looking for things like retroperitoneal hematomas and um, and, and things of that sort. But assuming that that's all normal, then the things that you're going to be looking for on your exam include things like jaundice, which supports the idea of quick cell breakdown, scleral icterus. That lymphadenopathy would certainly support the possibility of either an infection or some sort of um, malignancy, such as a lymphoma. Um, Splenomegaly can also be seen with a lot of these uh, issues. And then of course, if they happen to have a urine sample or a Foley or something in place, taking a look at that, the contents of the urine, uh, specimen and seeing, is it darker than usual? Um, cause that can also be very supportive outside of that though, there aren't many other good ways to examine someone and, and, and determine whether or not they have, um, active hemolysis. And to be quite honest with you, um, a lot of it is going to be contingent on, on blood work, most of which may be done before we're even involved, um, in in the situation. So maybe that's a that's a good way for us to sort of talk about Dan or Vivek. What kind of labs do you all send off on patients um, if you are worried about ongoing hemolysis?
1: You know, my personal favorite lab or sort of a procedure and a lab at the same time is looking at the blood smear. You're gonna get a lot of important information about potential. Hemolysis and potential causes for hemolysis if you end up actually looking at the red cells and finding a distinctive abnormality that points you towards one diagnosis or another. So, peripheral smear is very important. But while that's being prepared in the lab, the other things you should be ordering are um, just repeat CBC. Uh, Again, having close interval CBCs is really important in hemolytic anemias because it helps you determine the pace, the trajectory of the fall in their hemoglobin. Um, Getting reticulocyte count. to to make sure this isn't, you know, an aplastic crisis or something weird like that. And this is, in fact, a condition where the patient doesn't have any problem making new red cells or pumping out lots of new red cells. They're just getting broken down. So a high reticulocyte count is supportive of either bleeding or hemolytic anemia. And I actually think of hemolytic anemia as kind of like bleeding into the blood vessels, which is kind of a weird way to to frame it. But that, that always helps me think about what I should be looking for. LDH, this is a really important marker you can really see some astronomically high LDHs in uh, in brisk hemolytic anemias. Uh, CMP is important, a complete metabolic panel, uh, particularly with an eye on the bilirubin, which is another uh, sign that there's red cells breaking down, it should be an indirect bilirubinemia. Haptoglobin, this is a really sensitive marker for hemolysis. It, it's um, basically a molecule in the bloodstream that is supposed to soak up free hemoglobin. Free hemoglobin is a pretty reactive thing to have around. And so this, this molecule haptoglobin kind of clumps onto it and makes it less reactive. Um, and that drops precipitously when, uh, when there's hemolysis going on. So most times if there's brisk hemolysis, that haptoglobin is gonna be undetectable. And uh, the DAT uh, is another important thing. This is something we're going to get into a a little bit more detail in just a second. But essentially, this is a way for us to tell is the immune system involved in breaking down red cells.
2: So back to our patient case. So this patient, you, you know, we interviewed him. We went through all of Dan's questions that he talked about. We did Ronix exam. We found out that this guy has been more fatigued. He does have notable jaundice, you know, a little bit of yelling of the skin. He's got some scleral icterus, so that's concerning. And he had this recent initiation of a new medication. So we're concerned, could this be drug-induced hemolytic anemia, right? You know, those are all things. And he had this acute drop in hemoglobin. So all this supports this idea that we're worried about a hemolytic anemia process. Before we get into the results of the labs that Dan just mentioned, I want to talk a little bit more about the DAT test. So we briefly mentioned this in our transfusion medicine episode, but you can never talk too much about the DAT and the Eluit. So can one of you guys start with explaining what the DAT test is?
0: So the DAT stands for the direct antiglobulin test. It's also called the, the Coombs test. And so the fundamental question, remember, that you're trying to ask in with this test is, are there antibodies that are binding to the red blood cells that are then causing hemolysis? And so to understand this test, imagine a red blood cell that's bound by a bunch of antibodies or complement proteins. And so the patient's red blood cells that are bound to all of these antibodies and or complement are obtained, and then the technicians are washing these red blood cells to remove any unbound antibodies or complement that could be floating around. This solution, which again, remember, contains, in theory, your red blood cells with the antibodies or complement bound to it, are then mixed with uh, anti-IgG antibodies or anti-C3 antibodies. And if either of these are positive, what you would expect to see is agglutination. And this is going to signify a positive test. So whenever whenever we get a DAT back, there are going to be a series of possible outcomes. And it's important to conceptualize these and keep these in the back of your mind as a quick way to understand the DAT results. So because there are two different antibodies that you're using, they can either be that your IgG and your C3 are both positive, or your IgG can be positive and your C3 can be negative. That pattern is typically consistent with a warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. We'll talk about that more in a future episode. Remember, IgG positive, And C3 positive is going to suggest warm autoimmune. Also, IgG positive and C3 negative is also supportive of a warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Conversely, if you're IgG negative and C3 positive, that is more supportive of a cold agglutinin disease. And again, we'll talk about this as well. And then, lastly, of course, both of these could be negative, in which case you have a negative DAT. So, This is important for us to remember, though, that the DAT is not a perfect test. The DAT is actually positive in about 7% to 8% of hospitalized patients without any evidence of hemolysis, and therefore it's not really useful for us to just kind of send off willy-nilly on everybody, so you need to have an index of suspicion that the patient may be undergoing hemolysis before you send off this DAT. The other caveat with this is that low levels of IgG or complement are not going to be enough to trigger that agglutination that will then result in a positive test. So again, if you're suspicious of hemolysis, the DAT is negative, you may have to do a little bit more workup. And also, in very rare cases, IgA and IgG4 can also cause hemolysis. And as I alluded to, these antibodies are not uh, the antibodies that we're using to detect these particular antibodies, these culprit antibodies. And so we may miss these, but these are such a small subset and, a, and quite frankly, a rarity um, that for most intents and purposes, it's it's not going to be a problem. The next part of the DAT though, that we do want to pay attention to is the elution screen. So Vivek, do you want to remind us what the elution
2: is? Yeah, definitely. And I want to also remind our listeners one thing. When you get a type and screen, remember we talked about this in our in our prior transfusion medicine episode. The screen is a DAT test. You're looking for antibody on the red blood cell. So anytime you transfuse a patient, you're getting a type and screen, you're running a DAT test. So you're you're trying to see is there antibody attached to my red blood cell? You're not asking the question, is this antibody causing hemolysis? Which is why you can have so many false positives. Our body makes antibodies for a billion different reasons. So after your DAT comes back positive, another thing we can do is wash off all of the antibody. You know, take the patient's serum and, you know, regardless of what's on present on the antibody surface, let's just look at the antibodies that this patient's making and you test that against test red blood cells with known antigens. And the idea here is for some patient, you know, with this elution screen, that you're trying to see what is this antibody directed against? Is it a specific, not as common antigen? We can find a compatible blood product. Or is this autoantibody that your body is making in a positive DAT Attaching to a common surface antigen on all red blood cells. So that's why the elution screen is very, very, very important. We're not asking, is there just antibody present on our cells? We're asking, does this patient have antibodies that will attach to a bunch of different test red blood cells? We're trying to see, is the titer of that antibody high enough to actually cause agglutination of test red blood cells? And that's what the elution screen is. You're basically looking at the antibodies that the patient has, are they reacting to test red blood cells, not just is their antibody present? And that's why that elution screen is very important because if you have a positive DAT and a negative elution screen, that means that those patients' antibodies aren't attaching to test red blood cells, so it's probably not causing hemolysis. So, you know, that really increases your suspicion when your elution screen is also positive. So type in screen, the screen is a DAT test. DAT test alone is not enough. You need clinical evidence of hemolysis, and you need an elution screen that's positive, as that will support the diagnosis that you have autoantibodies that are attaching to common red blood cell antigens, which is really classic for warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia.
1: And you, know, you may hear about these things called like supercooms or uh, additional Tests that you can look for less common antibodies that maybe your uh, the, the Coombs test is not sensitive enough to pick up on. Sure, you can you can go down that rabbit hole. Um, there's there's a role for it in certain clinical scenarios, but most of the time when that DAT is negative, I'm significantly less worried about autoimmune hemolysis, and I need to look for another reason why patient hemolytic markers might be elevated. And. In this patient's case, our workup was consistent with the hemolytic anemia. Um, the LDH was elevated at 782, uh, the bilirubin was high, the reticulocyte fraction was elevated around 12%, and the, the haptoglobin was undetectable. The peripheral smear didn't see any like obvious abnormalities, uh, maybe a couple of cells that looked a little funny here and there. Uh, we can talk about exactly what we saw. But other than a decreased RBC, there were normal platelets, normal white cells. And, and given that history of having started that medicine, we were a little worried about the possibility of G6PD deficiency. It's uh, a very important enzyme deficiency to know about. So um, can, can one of y'all tell us
0: about that? So... G6PD is the most common enzyme deficiency that is seen. It's affecting about 400 million people worldwide. And I'm sure our listeners have heard about this before. We learned about it in medical school and we always learned about it in the context of a patient eating fava beans. And as an aside, I've never seen a fava bean. I actually don't even know what a fava bean is. I just know that there's an association between fava beans and G6PD. Nonetheless, let's remember that the way that red blood cells generate energy is from two pathways. There's a glycolytic pathway and a hexospanophosphate pathway, the HMP pathway. So normally glycolysis is the main pathway by which the red blood cell gets energy, but under times of stress, the other pathway becomes more important. The reason I'm trying to unintentionally trigger these memories of biochemistry is because when that HMP pathway is overactivated, that is when G6PD is really, really important um, for the the cell to be able to generate energy. Um, And so basically in the absence of G6PD, the HMP shunt can't function. So there are a few important things that I want to point out um, when it comes to trying to make a diagnosis of G6PD deficiency in clinical practice. Um, So G6PD is located on the X chromosome. So it's more likely to be seen in males, but it can also be seen in females. There are over 400 mutations have been identified in G6PD. So um, it's not like there's one marker that we can look for. G6PD levels normally decrease as the cells get older. So in in patients with this mutation, what ends up happening is the G6PD levels actually just decrease a lot faster. The reason this is important is because sometimes people are like, let's check a G6PD level in patients that come in with active hemolysis concerning for G6PD deficiency. And their levels may look normal because what we're checking when we say level is actually an activity level. And so presumably the cells that already had G6PD deficiency are already sort of killed off. And the ones with normal activity levels that are uh, more immature are still in circulation. So that level may be falsely normal, and that shouldn't give you a false sense of reassurance that the patient doesn't have G6PD deficiency. Ultimately, this is clinically relevant because There are so many drugs that we want to avoid in patients with G6P deficiency, especially in hematology and oncology. This is really relevant for drugs like like dapsone that we give to patients all the time when we put them on high dose steroids. So it is something to just always sort of keep in the back of our mind, especially if you start somebody on a culprit drug and then all of a sudden they present with concerns for hemolysis.
1: And I'm so happy that, that Ronick you mentioned how many mutations there are, because that is something that is so important to keep in mind when it comes to G6PD deficiency. The spectrum of, of severity is so broad, for ranging from folks that have very mild, like the G6PD A+, uh, which is the most common uh, abnormal variant, causes, just like you said, somewhat faster decline in g 6 pd function over a red cell's lifespan. And so really mild phenotype, only with severe oxidative challenges from high doses of these meds or very severe illness, do you see hemolysis? But there are other folks with really, really dysfunctional enzymes that basically don't work from the jump. And those are folks who are gonna have just chronic low-level hemolysis at at baseline, absent any particular stressor. And uh, you know, of course fava beans a classic favism is is sort of the big association meds, but even severe illness. I, I saw somebody with, um, who was in DKA that ended up having a G6PD hemolytic crisis as a result of it can set this off. So really broad category of things, um, and genetic testing now has a role for, for diagnosis. But like you said, in the acute setting, these reticulocytes are getting pumped out with as best a functioning G6PD enzyme as the red cell ever going to have. So functional testing is not really that helpful in the acute setting. You, you hit on a, a lot of really important points here
2: and i want to add you know when we think about why this, so this patient ended up being treated with supportive care the thought was that this patient had g6pd deficiency And like Ronick and Dan were talking about, you know, activity levels in this scenario in the acute hemolytic episode may not be reliable. But here are the key triggers that made us think this. One, the DAT test was negative. So there wasn't autoantibodies. Number two, in the peripheral smear, there were no spherocytes. Remember that autoimmune warm hemolytic anemia, and we'll talk about this in, in our next episodes, that you see spherocytes. We didn't see that. You don't always see the classic bite cell pattern on the smear with G6PD deficiency. Don't let that be... Uh, a fool for you, you know, yes, that's on the board exams, but we're talking about real life, right? That doesn't always happen in real life. And and it's, it's actually pretty common for us not to see that classic smear finding for these patients. So this patient was treat, treated with supportive care. He ended up doing very well. In the outpatient setting, he was diagnosed with G6PD deficiency. So this is a pretty satisfying case. I think now is probably a good time to, to wrap up this episode, and we'll have a bonus episode where we go through more congenital hemolytic anemias. So I want to leave the floor to Dan and and Any words of wisdom? Any, any parting thoughts for our listeners?
1: A lot of the times, I think about these hemolytic anemia consults the same way that I think about anticoagulation failure consults. Like, okay, prove it. Uh, you know, you have to you have to really convince me that this patient is having an active hemolytic episode. Um, and you know, as far as G6PD, we'll, we'll link uh, in our show notes to a database uh, of drugs that can penetrate There's so many drugs out there that can do this. The thing that I find the most useful is to just look it up and, and see is this a drug that's strongly associated, that's possibly associated with hemolytic episodes.
0: Dan was a little bit more forceful um, in how he was, how he said it. I was just going to simply say to consider G6PD deficiency, consider hemolytic anemias, but make sure you do your part in making sure that bleeding is not happening when someone comes with acute anemia, because that's more likely to be the answer. All right, guys. Well, I'm excited to do a bonus episode on other causes of congenital uh, hemolytic anemias, but we'll wrap it up for, for this episode, um, for this one. So until next time, everybody, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.